0: Section four of the life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lamon. Chapter two, part three. For hunting purposes, the Pigeon Creek region was one of the most inviting on earth the uplands were all covered with an original growth of majestic forest trees, whilst on the hillsides, and wherever an opening in the woods permitted the access of sunlight, there were beds of fragrant and beautiful wild flowers, presenting, in contrast with the dense green around them, the most brilliant and agreeable effects. Here the game had vast and secluded ranges, which until very recently had heard the report of no white man's gun in abe's time the squirrels rabbits partridges and other varieties of smaller game were so abundant as to be a nuisance they devastated grain fields and gardens and while they were seldom shot for the table the settlers frequently devised the most cunning means of destroying them in great quantities in order to save the growing crops wild turkeys and deer were the principal reliance for food but besides these were the bears the wild cats and the panthers The scream of the latter, the most ferocious and bloodthirsty of the cat kind, hastened Abe's homeward steps on many a dark night as he came late from Dave Turnham's, Uncle Wood's, or the Gentryville Grocery. That terrific cry appeals not only to the natural fear of the monster's teeth and claws, but, heard in the solitude of night and the forest, it awakens a feeling of superstitious horror that chills the heart of the bravest. Note now about the timber it was black walnut and black oak hickory and jack oak elm and white oak undergrowth logwood in abundance grapevines and shoemake bushes and milksick plenty all my relations died of that disease on the little pigeon creek spencer county dennis hanks end note. everybody about abe made hunting a part of his business Tom Lincoln and Dennis Hanks doubtless regaled him continually with wonderful stories of their luck and prowess, but he was no hunter himself, and did not care to learn. It is true that when a mere child he made a fortunate shot at a flock of wild turkeys through a crack in the wall of the half-faced cabin, and that when grown up he went for coons occasionally with Richardson, or watched deer licks with Turnham, but a true and hearty sportsman he never was. As practised on this wild border, it was a solitary, unsociable way of spending time, which did not suit his nature, and besides it required more exertion than he was willing to make without due compensation. It could not be said that Abe was indolent, for he was alert, brisk, active, about everything that he made up his mind to do. His step was very quick." and when he had a sufficient object in view, he strode out on his long muscular legs, swinging his bony arms as he moved along, with an energy that put miles behind him before a lazy fellow like Dennis Hanks or John Johnston could make up his mind to start. But when he felt that he had time to spare, he preferred to give it to reading or to talk, and of the two he would take the latter, provided he could find a person who had something new or racy to say. He liked excessively to hear his own voice, when it was promoting fun and good fellowship, but he was also a most rare and attentive listener. Hunting was entirely too still an occupation for him. NOTE 1. No Indians there when I first went to Indiana. I say no, none. I say this, bear, deer, turkey and coon, wild cats and other things, and frogs, Dennis Hanks. Note two You say what were some of the customs? I suppose you mean take us all together. One thing I can tell you about, we had to work very hard clearing ground for to keep body and soul together, and every spare time we had we picked up our rifle, and brought in a fine deer or turkey, and in the winter time we went a coon hunting, for coonskins were at that time considered legal tender, and deerskins and hams. I tell you, Billy, I enjoyed myself better then than I ever have since. Dennis Hanks Note 3 No doubt about the A. Lincolns killing the turkey. He done it with his father's rifle, made by William Lutz of Bullitt County, Kentucky. I have killed a hundred deer with her myself. Turkeys too numerous to mention. Dennis Hanks End Notes all manner of rustic sports were in vogue among the Pigeon Creek boys. Abe was especially formidable as a wrestler, and from about 1828 onward there was no man far or near that would give him a match. Cat, throwing them all, hopping and half-hammon, whatsoever that may mean, and four-corner bullpen were likewise athletic games in high honour. Note, You ask what sort of plays— what we called them at that time were bullpen, corner and cat, hopping and half hammon, playing at night, old sister Phoebe, this I know, for I took a hand myself, and wrestling, we could throw down anybody Dennis Hanks End note. All sorts of frolics and all kinds of popular gatherings, whether for work or amusement, possessed irresistible attractions for Abe he loved to see and be seen, to make sport and to enjoy it. It was a most important part of his education that he got at the corn-shuckings, the log-rollings, the shooting-matches, and the gay and jolly weddings of those early border times. He was the only man or boy within a wide compass who had learning enough to furnish the literature for such occasions, and those who failed to employ his talents to grace or commemorate the festivities they set on foot were sure to be stung by some coarse but humorous lampoon from his pen. In the social way, he would not suffer himself to be slighted with impunity, and if there were any who did not enjoy his wit, they might content themselves with being the subjects of it. Unless he received some very pointed intimation that his presence was not wanted, he was among the first and earliest at all the neighborhood routes." and when his tall singular figure was seen towering amongst the hunting-shirts, it was considered due notice that the fun was about to commence. Abe Linkhern, as he was generally called, made things lively wherever he went, and if Crawford's blue nose happened to have been carried to the assembly, it quickly subsided, on his arrival, into some obscure corner, for the implacable Linkhern was apt to make it the subject of a jest that would set the company in a roar. But when a party was made up and Abe left out, as sometimes happened through the influence of Crawford, he sulked, fumed, got mad, nursed his anger into rage, and then broke out in songs or chronicles which were frequently very bitter, sometimes passably humorous, and invariably vulgar. At an early age he began to attend the preachings round about, but principally at the Pigeon Creek Church with a view to catching whatever might be ludicrous in the preacher's air or manner, and making it the subject of mimicry as soon as he could collect an audience of idle boys and men to hear him. A pious stranger, passing that way on a Sunday morning, was invited to preach for the Pigeon Creek congregation, but he banged the boards of the old pulpit, and bellowed and groaned so wonderfully that Abe could hardly contain his mirth. This memorable sermon was a great favorite with him, and he frequently reproduced it, with nasal tones, rolling eyes, and all manner of droll aggravations, to the great delight of Nat Grigsby and the wild fellows whom Nat was able to assemble. None that heard him, not even Nat himself, who was anything but dull, was ever able to show wherein Abe's absurd version really departed from the original. The importance of Gentryville as a centre of business soon began to possess the imaginations of the dwellers between the two pigeon creeks. Why might it not be a great place of trade? Mr. Gentry was a most generous patron. It was advantageously situated, where two roads crossed. It already had a blacksmith's shop, a grocery, and a store. Jones, it is true, had once moved away in a sulk but mr gentry's fine diplomacy had quickly brought him back with all his goods and talents unreservedly devoted to the improvement of the town and now since there was literally nothing left to cloud the prospects of the point brisk times were expected in the near future dennis hanks john johnston abe and the other boys in the neighbourhood loitered much about the store the grocery and the blacksmith shop at gentryville dennis ingenuously remarks sometimes we spent a little time at grog pushing weights wrestling telling stories the time that abe spent at grog was in truth a little time he never liked ardent spirits at any period of his life but he did take his dram as others did he was a natural politician intensely ambitious and anxious to be popular for this reason and this alone he drank with his friends although very temperately If he could have avoided it without giving offence he would gladly have done so, but he coveted the applause of his pot companions, and because he could not get it otherwise, made a faint pretence of enjoying his liquor as they did. The people drank, and Abe was always for doing whatever the people did. All his life he held that whatsoever was popular, the habit or sentiment of the masses, could not be essentially wrong but although a whiskey jug was kept in every ordinarily respectable household, Abe never tasted it at home. His stepmother thought he carried his temperance to extremes. Note. The fact is proved by his most intimate acquaintances, both at Gentryville and New Salem. End note. Jones, the great Jones, without whom it was generally agreed that Gentryville must have gone into eclipse, but with whom, and through whom, it was somehow to become a sort of metropolitan crossroads, Jones was Abe's friend and mentor from the moment of their acquaintance. Abe is even said to have clerked for him—that is, he packed and unpacked boxes, ranged goods on the shelves, drew the liquids in the cellar, or exhibited the stone and earthenware to purchasers. But in his service he was never promoted to keeping accounts, or even to selling the finer goods across the counter. But mr Jones was very fond of his clerk, enjoyed his company, appreciated his humor, and predicted something great for him. As he did not doubt that Abe would one day be a man of considerable influence, he took pains to give him correct views of the nature of American institutions. An ardent Jackson man himself, he imparted to Abe the true faith as delivered by that great democratic apostle and the traces of this teaching were never wholly effaced from Mr. Lincoln's mind. Whilst he remained at Gentryville, his politics accorded with Mr. Jones's, and even after he had turned Whig in Illinois, John Hanks tells us that he wanted to whip a man for traducing Jackson. He was an eager reader of newspapers whenever he could get them, and Mr. Jones carefully put into his hands the kind he thought a raw youth should have. But Abe's appetite was not to be satisfied by what Mr. Jones supplied, and he frequently borrowed others from Uncle Wood, who lived about a mile from the Lincoln cabin, and for whom he sometimes worked. Note Lincoln drove a team, cut up pork, and sold goods for Jones. Jones told me that Lincoln read all his books, and I remember History of the United States as one jones often said to me that lincoln would make a great man one of these days had said so long before and to other people said so as far back as eighteen twenty eight nine doherty what manner of man kept the gentryville grocery we are not informed abe was often at his place however and would stay so long at nights telling stories and cracking jokes that dennis hanks who was ambitious in the same line and probably jealous of Abe's overshadowing success, got mad at him and cussed him. When Dennis found himself thrown in the shade, he immediately became virtuous and wished to retire early. John Baldwin, the blacksmith, was one of Abe's special friends from his boyhood onward. Baldwin was a storyteller and a joker of rare accomplishments, and Abe, when a very little fellow, would slip off to his shop and sit and listen to him by the hour. As he grew up, the practice continued as of old, except that Abe soon began to exchange anecdotes with his clever friend at the anvil. Dennis Hanks says Baldwin was his particular friend, and that Abe spent a great deal of his leisure time with him. Statesmen, plenipotentiaries, famous commanders, have many times made the White House at Washington ring with their laughter over the quaint tales of John Baldwin the blacksmith, "'delivered second-hand by his inimitable friend Lincoln. "'Abe and Dave Turnham had one day been threshing wheat, "'probably for Turnham's father, "'and concluded to spend the evening at Gentryville. "'They lingered there until late in the night, "'when, wending their way along the road towards Lincoln's cabin, "'they espied something resembling a man lying, "'dead or insensible, by the side of a mud-puddle. "'They rolled the sleeper over.' and found in him an old and quite respectable acquaintance hopelessly drunk. All efforts failed to rouse him to any exertion on his own behalf. Abe's companions were disposed to let him lie in the bed he had made for himself, but as the night was cold and dreary, he must have frozen to death had this inhuman proposition been equally agreeable to everybody present. To Abe it seemed utterly monstrous, and seeing he was to have no help, he bent his mighty frame, and taking the big man in his long arms, carried him a great distance to Dennis Hanks's cabin. There he built a fire, warmed, rubbed, and nursed him through the entire night, his companions of the road having left him alone in his merciful task. The man often told John Hanks that it was mighty clever in Abe to tote him to a warm fire that cold night, and was very sure that Abe's strength and benevolence had saved his life. Abe was fond of music, but was himself wholly unable to produce three harmonious notes together. He made various vain attempts to sing a few lines of poor old Ned, but they were all equally ludicrous and ineffectual. Religious songs did not appear to suit him at all, says Dennis Hanks, but of profane ballads and amorous ditties he knew the words of a vast number. When Dennis got happy at the grocery, or passed the bounds of propriety at a frolic, He was in the habit of raising a charming carol in praise of the joys which enter into the mussulman's estate on earth, of which he has vouchsafed us only three lines. The turbaned Turk that scorns the world and struts about with his whiskers curled for no other man but himself to see. It was a prime favourite of Abe's, and Dennis sang it with such appropriate zest and feeling that Abe never forgot a single word of it while he lived. Another was— Hail, Columbia, Happy Land, If You Ain't Drunk, I'll Be Damned, a song which Dennis thinks should be warbled only in the fields, and tells us that they knew and enjoyed all such songs as this. Dave Turnham was also a musical genius, and he had a piece beginning. There was a Romish lady brought up in popery, which Abe thought one of the best he ever heard, and insisted upon Dave singing it for the delectation of old Tom Lincoln, who relished it quite as much as Abe did. I recollect some more. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. When I can read my title clear to mansions in the skies. How tedious and tasteless the hours! Oh, to grace how great a debtor! Other little songs I won't say anything about. They would not look well in print, but I could give them. Dennis Hanks. End note. Mrs. Crawford says that Abe did not attempt to sing much about the house. He was probably afraid to indulge in such offensive gaieties in the very habitation of the morose Crawford. According to Dennis Hanks, his melody was not of the sort that hath power to charm the savage, and he was naturally timid about trying it upon Crawford. But when he was freed from those chilling restraints, he put forth his best endeavours to render one song that was called William Riley— and one that was called John Anderson's Lamentations, and one that was made about General Jackson and John Adams at the time they were nominated for the presidency. The Jackson song indicated clearly enough Abe's steadiness in the political views inculcated by Jones. Mrs. Crawford could recollect but a single stanza of it. "'Let old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind, and Jackson be our president and Adams left behind.' In the text of John Anderson's Lamentations, a most distressful lyric to begin with, Abe was popularly supposed to have interpolated some lines of his own, which conclusively attested his genius for poetic composition. At all events, he sang it as follows. "'O sinners, poor sinners, take warning by me. The fruits of transgression behold now and see.' my soul is tormented my body confined my friends and dear children left weeping behind much intoxication my ruin has been and my dear companion hath barbarously slain in yonder cold graveyard the body doth lie whilst i am condemned and shortly must die remember john anderson's death and reform before death o'ertakes you and vengeance comes on my grief's overwhelming in god i must trust i am justly condemned my sentence is just i am waiting the summons in eternity to be hurled whilst my poor little orphans are cast on the world i hope my kind neighbors their guardians will be and heaven kind heaven protect them and me in eighteen twenty six abe's sister nancy or sarah was married to aaron grigsby and the festivities of the occasion were made memorable by a song entitled Adam and Eve's Wedding Song, which many believed Abe had himself composed. The conceits embodied in the doggerel were old before Abe was born, but there is some intrinsic as well as extraneous evidence to show that the doggerel itself was his. It was sung by the whole Lincoln family, before Nancy's marriage, and since, but by nobody else in the neighborhood." adam and eve's wedding song when adam was created he dwelt in eden's shade as moses has recorded and soon an eve was made ten thousand times ten thousand of creatures swarmed around before a bride was formed and yet no mate was found the lord then was not willing that man should be alone but caused a sleep upon him and took from him a bone and closed the flesh in that place of and then he took the same and of it made a woman and brought her to the man then adam he rejoiced to see his loving bride a part of his own body the product of his side this woman was not taken from adam's feet we see so he must not abuse her the meaning seems to be this woman was not taken from adam's head we know to show she must not rule him tis evidently so this woman she was taken from under adam's arm so she must be protected from injuries and harm. "'It was considered at that time,' says Mr. Richardson, "'that Abe was the best penman in the neighbourhood. "'One day, while he was on a visit at my mother's, "'I asked him to write some copies for me. "'He very willingly consented. "'He wrote several of them, "'but one of them I've never forgotten, "'although a boy at the time. "'It was this. "'Good boys who to their books apply "'will all be great men by and by.' Here are two original lines from Abe's own copy-book, probably the first he ever had, and which must not be confounded with the famous scrap-book, in which his stepmother, lost in admiration of its contents, declares he entered all things. Abraham Lincoln, his hand and pen, he will be good, but God knows when. And again, Abraham Lincoln is my name, and with my pen I write the same, I will be a good boy, but God knows when. The same book contains the following, written at a later day, and with nothing to indicate that any part of it was borrowed. Time, what an empty vapour tis, and days how swift they are, swift as the Indian arrow fly on a shooting star. The present moment just is here, then slides away in haste, that we can never say they're ours, but only say they're past. Abe wrote many satires and chronicles which are only remembered in fragments by a few old persons in the neighborhood. Even if we had them in full they were most of them too indecent for publication; such at least was the character of a piece which is said to have been "exceedingly humorous and witty," touching a church trial, wherein brother Harper and sister Gordon were the parties seeking judgment. It was very coarse, but it served admirably to raise a laugh in the grocery at the expense of the church. His chronicles were many, and on a great variety of subjects. They were written, as his early admirers love to tell us, in the scriptural style, but those we have betray a very limited acquaintance with the model. In these chapters was celebrated every event of importance that took place in the neighborhood—weddings, fights, Crawford's nose, Sister Gordon's innocence, Brother Harper's wit, were all served up fresh and gross for the amusement of the groundlings. Charles and Reuben Grigsby were married about the same time, and being brothers, returned to their father's house with their brides upon the same day. The fair, the feast, the dance, the ostentatious retirement of the brides and grooms, were conducted in the old-fashioned way of all new countries in the United States, but a way which was bad enough to shock Squire Western himself. On this occasion Abe was not invited, and was very mad in consequence. This indignation found vent in a highly spiced piece of descriptive writing, entitled The Chronicles of Reuben, which are still in existence. But even the chronicles, venomous and highly successful as they were, were totally insufficient to sate Abe's desire for vengeance on the Grigsby's. They were important people about Gentryville, and the social slight they had given him stung him bitterly. He therefore began on Billy in rhyme, after disposing of Charles and Reuben in scriptural style. Mrs. Crawford attempted to repeat these verses to Mr. Herndon, but the good old lady had not proceeded very far when she blushed very red and saying that they were hardly decent proposed to tell them to her daughter who would tell them to her husband who would write them down and send them to mr herndon they are probably much curtailed by mrs crawford's modesty but still it is impossible to transcribe them we give what we can to show how the first steps of abe's fame as a great writer were won It must be admitted that the literary taste of the community in which these rhymes were popular could not have been very high. I will tell you about Joel and Mary. It is neither a joke nor a story, for Reuben and Charles has married two girls, but Billy has married a boy. The girls he had tried on every side, but none could he get to agree. All was in vain, he went home again, and since that he is married to Natty. So Billy and Natty agreed very well, and Mamma's well pleased at the match. The egg it is laid, but Natty's afraid the shell is so soft it never will hatch. But Betsy, she said, you cursed bald-head, my suitor you never can be. Besides, Abe dropped the chronicles at a point on the road where he was sure one of the Grigsby's would find them. The stratagem succeeded, and that delicate satire produced the desired effect. The Grigsbys were infuriated, wild with a rage which would be satisfied only when Abe's face should be pounded into a jelly and a couple of his ribs cracked by some member of the injured family. Honor, according to the Pigeon Creek Code, demanded that somebody should be licked, in expiation of an outrage so grievous. If not Abe, then some friend of Abe's, whom he would depute to stand the brunt in his stead. Billy, the eldest of the brothers, was selected to challenge him. Abe accepted generally, that is, agreed that there should be a fight about the matter in question. It was accordingly so ordered, the ground was selected a mile and a half from Gentryville, a ring was marked out, and the bullies for twenty miles around attended. The friends of both parties were present in force, and the excitement ran high. When the time arrived for the champions to step into the ring, Abe displayed his chivalry in a manner that must have struck the bystanders with admiration. He announced that whereas Billy was confessedly his inferior, in size, shape, and talent, unable to hit with pen or fist with anything like his power, therefore he would forego the advantage which the challenge gave him, and turn over his stepbrother John Johnston to do battle in his behalf. If this near relative should be sacrificed, he would abide the issue. He was merely anxious to see a fair and honorable fight. This proposition was considered highly meritorious, and the battle commenced on those general terms. John started out with fine pluck and spirit, but in a little while Billy got in some clever hits, and Abe began to exhibit symptoms of great uneasiness. Another pass or two, and John flagged, quite decidedly, and it became evident that Abe was anxiously casting about for some pretext to break the ring. At length, when John was fairly down and Billy on top, and all the spectators cheering, swearing, and pressing up to the very edge of the ring, Abe cried out that Bill Boland showed foul play, and, bursting out of the crowd, seized Grigsby by the heels and flung him off. Having righted John and cleared the battleground of all opponents, he swung a whiskey-bottle over his head, and swore that he was the big buck of the lick. It seems that nobody of the Grigsby faction, not one in that large assembly of bullies, cared to encounter the sweep of Abe's tremendously long and muscular arms, and so he remained master of the lick. He was not content, however, with a naked triumph, but vaunted himself in the most offensive manner. He singled out the victorious but cheated Billy, and making sundry hostile demonstrations, declared that he could whip him then and there. Billy meekly said he did not doubt that, but that if Abe would make things even between them by fighting with pistols, he would not be slow to grant him a meeting. But Abe replied that he was not going to fool away his life on a single shot, and so Billy was fain to put up with the poor satisfaction he had already received. At Gentryville they had exhibitions or speaking meetings. Some of the questions they spoke on were the bee and the ant, water and fire, another was which had the most right to complain, the negro or the Indian, another which was the strongest, wind or water. The views which Abe then entertained on the Indian and the negro question would be intensely interesting now, but just fancy him discoursing on wind and water— What treasures of natural science, what sallies of humour, he must have wasted upon that audience of bumpkins. A little farther on we shall see that Abe made pretensions to an acquaintance with the laws of nature, which was considered marvellous in that day and generation. Note. Lincoln did write what is called the Book of Chronicles, a satire on the Grigsbys and Josiah Crawford, not the schoolmaster, but the man who loaned Lincoln the life of Washington the satire was good sharp cutting it hurt us then but it is all over now there is no family in the land who after this loved lincoln so well and who now look upon him as so great a man we all voted for him all that could children and grandchildren first last and always nat grigsby End note. Dennis hanks insists that abe and he became learned men and expert disputants not by a course of judicious reading, but by attending speech-makings, gatherings, etc. "'How did Lincoln and yourself learn so much in Indiana under such disadvantages?' said Mr. Herndon to Dennis, on one of his two oral examinations. The question was artfully put, for it touched the jaunty Dennis on the side of his vanity, and elicited a characteristic reply. We learned, said he, by sight, scent, and hearing. We heard all that was said, and talked over and over the questions we heard, wore them slick, greasy, and threadbare, went to political and other speeches and gatherings, as you do now. We would hear all sides and opinions, talk them over, discuss them, agreeing or disagreeing. Abe, as I said before, was originally a Democrat, after the order of Jackson. So was his father, so we all were. He preached, made speeches, read for us, explained to us, etc. Abe was a cheerful boy, a witty boy, very humorous always. Sometimes would get sad, but not very often. Lincoln would frequently make political and other speeches to the boys. He was calm, logical, and clear always. He attended trials, went to court always, read the revised Statute of Indiana, dated 1824, heard law speeches, and listened to law trials, etc. Lincoln was lazy, a very lazy man. He was always reading, scribbling, writing, ciphering, writing poetry, and the like. In Gentryville, about one mile west of Thomas Lincoln's farm, Lincoln would go and tell his jokes and stories, and etc., and was so odd, original, and humorous, and witty, that all the people in town would gather around him. He would keep them there till midnight, I would get tired, want to go home, cuss Abe most heartily. Abe was a good talker, a good reader, and was kind of a newsboy. Boonville was the courthouse town of Warwick County, and was situated about fifteen miles from Gentryville. Thither Abe walked whenever he had time to be present at the sittings of the court, where he could learn something of public business, amuse himself profitably, and withal pick up items of news and gossip— which made him an interesting personage when he returned home. During one of these visits he watched with profound attention the progress of a murder-trial, in which a Mr. John Breckinridge was counsel for the defense. At the conclusion of the latter's speech, Abe, who had listened, literally entranced, accosted the man of eloquence, and ventured to compliment him on the success of his effort. Breckinridge looked at the shabby boy in amazement, and passed on his way, but many years afterward in eighteen sixty two when abe was president and breckinridge a resident of texas probably needing executive clemency they met a second time when abe said it was the best speech that i up to that time had ever heard if i could as i then thought make as good a speech as that my soul would be satisfied it is a curious fact that all through abe's childhood and boyhood when he seemed to have as little prospect of the Presidency as any boy that was ever born, he was in the habit of saying, and perhaps sincerely believing, that that great prize would one day be his. When Mrs. Crawford reproved him for fooling and bedeviling the girls in her kitchen, and asked him what he supposed would ever become of him, he answered that he was going to be President of the United States. Note. He frequently made use of similar expressions to several others, note. Abe usually did the milling for the family, and had the neighbor boy, Dave Turnham, for his companion. At first they had to go a long distance, at least twelve or thirteen miles, to Hoffman's on Anderson's Creek. But after a while, a Mr. Gordon, the husband of Sister Gordon, about whom the witty piece was written, built a horse-mill within a few miles of the Lincolns. Here Abe had come one day, with a grist, and Dave probably with him. He had duly hitched his old mare, and started her with great impatience, when, just as he was sounding another cluck to stir up her imperturbable and lazy spirit, she let out with her heels, and laid Abe sprawling and insensible on the ground. He was taken up in that condition, and did not recover for many minutes. But the first use made of returning sense was to finish the interrupted cluck he and mr herndon had many learned discussions in their quiet little office at springfield respecting this remarkable phenomenon involving so nice a question in psychology mr william wood already referred to as uncle wood was a genuine friend and even a patron of abe's he lived only about a mile and a half from the lincolns and frequently had both old tom and abe to work for him the one as a rough carpenter, and the other for a common labourer. He says that Abe was in the habit of carrying his pieces to him for criticism and encouragement. Mr. Wood took at least two newspapers, one of them devoted to politics and one of them to temperance. Abe borrowed them both, and reading them faithfully over and over again, was inspired with an ardent desire to write something on the subjects of which they treated he accordingly composed an article on temperance, which Mr. Wood thought excelled for sound sense anything that the paper contained. It was forwarded, through the agency of a Baptist preacher, to an editor in Ohio, by whom it was published, to the infinite gratification of Mr. Wood and his protege. Abe then tried his hand on national politics, saying that the American government was the best form of government for an intelligent people— that it ought to be kept sound and preserved for ever, that general education should be fostered and carried all over the country, that the Constitution should be saved, the Union perpetuated, and the laws revered, respected, and enforced. This article was co-signed, like the other, to Mr. Wood, to be ushered by him before the public. A lawyer named Pritchard chanced to pass that way, and being favoured with a perusal of Abe's peace, pithily and enthusiastically declared the world can't beat it he begged for it and it was published in some obscure paper this new success causing the author a most extraordinary access of pride and happiness but in eighteen twenty eight abe had become very tired of his home he was now nineteen years of age and becoming daily more restive under the restraints of servitude which bound him He was anxious to try the world for himself, and make his way according to his own notions. "'Abe came to my house one day,' says Mr. Wood, and stood round about, timid and shy. I knew he wanted something, and I said to him, "'Abe, what's your case?' He replied, "'Uncle, I want you to go to the river and give me some recommendation to some boat.' I remarked, "'Abe, your age is against you. You're not twenty yet.' "'I know that, but I want to start,' said Abe. "'I concluded not to go for the boy's good. "'Poor Abe! Old Tom still had a claim upon him, "'which even Uncle Wood would not help him to evade. "'He must wait a few weary months before he would be of age, "'and could say that he was his own man and go his own way. "'Old Tom was a hard taskmaster to him, "'and no doubt consumed the greater part, if not all, of his wages.' in the beginning of march eighteen twenty eight abe went to work for old mr gentry the proprietor of gentryville early in the next month the old gentleman furnished his son allan with a boat and a cargo of bacon and other produce with which he was to go on a trading expedition to new orleans unless the stock was sooner exhausted abe having been found faithful and efficient was employed to accompany the young man as a bow hand to work the front oars he was paid eight dollars per month and ate and slept on board returning gentry paid his passage on the deck of a steamboat while this boat was loading at gentry's landing near rockport on the ohio abe saw a great deal of the pretty miss roby whom he had saved from the wrath of crawford the schoolmaster when she failed to spell defied she says "'Abe was then a long, thin, leggy, gawky boy, dried up and shriveled. "'This young lady subsequently became the wife of Allan Gentry, "'Abe's companion on the projected voyage. "'She probably felt a deep interest in the enterprise at hand, "'for the very boat itself seems to have had attractions for her. "'One evening,' says she, "'Abe and I were sitting on the banks of the Ohio, "'or rather on the boat spoken of, I said to Abe that the sun was going down. He said to me, That's not so. It don't really go down. It seems to. The earth turns from west to east, and the revolution of the earth carries us under, as it were. We do the sinking, as you call it. The sun, as to us, is comparatively still. The sun's sinking is only an appearance. I replied, Abe, what a fool you are. I know now that I was the fool, not Lincoln. I am now thoroughly satisfied that Abe knew the general laws of astronomy and the movements of the heavenly bodies. He was better read then than the world knows, or is likely to know exactly. No man could talk to me that night as he did, unless he had known something of geography as well as astronomy. He often and often commented or talked to me about what he had read, seemed to read it out of the book as he went along, did so to others, he was the learned boy among us unlearned folks he took great pains to explain could do so simply he was diffident then too note when he appeared in company the boys would gather and cluster around him to hear him talk mr lincoln was figurative in his speeches talks and conversations he argued much from analogy and explained things hard for us to understand by stories, maxims, tales, and figures. He would almost always point his lesson or idea by some story that was plain and near us, that we might instantly see the force or bearing of what he said. Nat Grigsby. The trip of Gentry and Lincoln was a very profitable one, and Mr. Gentry, Sr. was highly gratified by the result. Abe displayed his genius for mercantile affairs by handsomely putting off on the innocent folks along the river some counterfeit money which a shrewd fellow had imposed upon Allen. Allen thought his father would be angry with him for suffering himself to be cheated, but Abe consoled him with the reflection that the old man wouldn't care how much bad money they took in in the course of business if they only brought the proper amount of good money home. Note Gentry, Allen, was a great personal friend of Mr. Lincoln. He was a Democrat, but voted for Lincoln, sacrificing his party politics to his friendship. He says that on that trip they sold some of their produce at a certain landing, and by accident or fraud the bill was paid in counterfeit money. Gentry was grieving about it, but Lincoln said, Never mind, Allen, it will accidentally slip out of our fingers before we get to New Orleans, and then old Jim can't quarrel at us. Sure enough, it all went off like hot cakes. I was told this in Indiana by many people about Rockport. Herndon. It must be remembered that counterfeit money was the principal currency along the river at this period. At Madame Bouchain's plantation, six miles below Baton Rouge, they had an adventure, which reads strangely enough in the life of the great emancipator, the boat was tied up to the shore in the dead hours of the night, and Abe and Allen were fast asleep in the cabin in the stern, when they were startled by footsteps on board. They knew instantly that it was a gang of negroes come to rob and perhaps to murder them. Allen, thinking to frighten the intruders, cried out, "'Bring the guns, Lincoln, shoot them!' Abe came, without a gun, but he fell among the negroes with a huge bludgeon, and belaboured them most cruelly. Not content with beating them off the boat, he and gentry followed them, far back into the country, and then, running back to their craft, hastily cut loose and made rapid time down the river, fearing lest they should return in greater numbers to take revenge. The victory was complete, but in winning it Abe received a scar which he carried with him to his grave." when he was eighteen years old he conceived the project of building a little boat and taking the produce of the lincoln farm down the river to market he had learned the use of tools and possessed considerable mechanical talent as will appear in some other acts of his life of the voyage and its results we have no knowledge but an incident occurred before starting which he related in later life to his secretary of state mr seward that made a very marked and pleasant impression upon his memory. As he stood at the landing, a steamer approached, coming down the river. At the same time, two passengers came to the river's bank, who wished to be taken out to the packet with their luggage. Looking among the boats at the landing, they singled out Abrahams, and asked him to scull them to the steamer. This he did, and after seeing them in their trunks on board, He had the pleasure of receiving upon the bottom of his boat, before he shoved off, a silver half-dollar from each of his passengers. "'I could scarcely believe my eyes,' said Mr. Lincoln, in telling the story. "'You may think it was a very little thing,' continued he, "'but it was a most important incident in my life. I could scarcely believe that I, a poor boy, had earned a dollar in less than a day. The world seemed wider and fairer to me.' I WAS A MORE HOPEFUL AND CONFIDENT BEING FROM THAT TIME. NOTE HOLLAND'S LIFE OF LINCOLN, page 33 If Mr. Lincoln ever made the statement for which Mr. Seward is given as authority, he drew upon his imagination for the facts. He may have sculled passengers to a steamer when he was ferryman for Taylor, but he never made a trip like the one described, never built a boat till he went to Illinois, nor did he ever sell produce on his father's account, for the good reason that his father had none to sell. End of section four.